One of the main uh, themes that we've been touching on since the beginning of the retreat is the theme of cause and effect. Gil mentioned it very early on in talking about this general form of dependent arising that uh, stated when this is, that is, this arising, that arising, when this is not, that is not, this ceasing, that ceasing, ceases. Then we talked about it in terms of the Four Noble Truths, suffering and its cause, liberation and its cause. And then Sally talked about quite a detailed chain in the 12 links of dependent origination. That's not an accident, that when we address the topic of emptiness, cause and effect comes right to the foreground. So I wonder why that is. So I think it is because when you take the self out of the picture, you take out the idea of a controlling entity, and then you see that everything in the universe arises according to certain causes and conditions in very lawful ways. The universe is unfolding lawfully by all these different causes and conditions from different directions and through different sources. So one of these central laws that I want to talk about tonight is the law of karma and to understand how that operates. There are a couple of reasons for this. One is I think it's really needed to complete the understanding of not-self. And the second is that we're all moving back into daily life now. And when we move back into daily life, we're moving into the field of action. So we've been studying this week, I'd say primarily in terms of looking at the Eightfold Path, primarily focused on right view. We've been looking at the view that understands the selfless nature of things, the empty nature of things, the lack of solidity, the lack of uh, solid substance in anything. And now we're going back into the field of action, which in the Eightfold Path is described as sila, which is right speech, right action, right livelihood. So there's one important link between the path factor of right view and this whole field of action. Anybody remember what that is? Intention. Intention, wow. Very good. (laughs) Don't let pride come in. (laughs) Right intention is the link between right view and right action. It's samasankapa in the Eightfold Path. So this is closely connected with karma also, and we'll get, we'll get into that. The Dalai Lama was once, once asked if, you, if he had a choice between teaching Westerners about emptiness or teaching them about karma, which should he teach? He said karma. So maybe we've missed the boat this week, <laughs> but we're going to try to fill it in um, this evening. So teaching about karma is... It's an interesting topic because it's one of the topics that we can't verify so easily. I can't verify the Buddha's teachings on karma, and I doubt that many of you can verify them experientially. So I can't tell you from my own experience whether this is true or not. And I don't think it's my job to try to convince you that it's true, but I think it is my job to tell you 
what the Buddha said about karma. And then it's up to you to figure out how you want to hold it and relate to it. Personally, I think it's a helpful thing to believe in. And from the man who gave us the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path might be worth considering. You know, he might have had some insight here. So I want to explain really two things in the, the talk this evening. One is kind of the basics of karma and how we can relate to it in a sensible way because there are some misconceptions, I think, and some obstacles for for Westerners. And the second is how it relates to the theme of emptiness because at first it can seem contradictory. So first part of the talk, I just want to go over some of the basics of what karma is. The word karma is from Sanskrit. The Pali word is kama. And both of them were just simple words in the Buddha's day that meant action. So as I use the terms tonight, sometimes I might say karma, sometimes I might say kama, sometimes I might say action. I'm using them all synonymously. And this was a big topic of discussion in the time of the Buddha. All these wanderers and philosophers would cross paths and debate with one another about the meaning of the term action. And there were all kinds of different views. Some people said actions mattered. Other people said actions didn't matter at all. Some people said that there was no uh, ability to make choice, uh, that that everything was determined uh, in a fatalistic way. Some people said that there were results from actions. Some people said there were no lasting results from actions. So all these different debates were going on. But the Buddha introduced a very new take on the central import of action. And that is that it means truly, the important thing is action with volition. And he stated this, this is in the first quote on page 20 of the study guide. Volition, O monks, is what I call action. For through volition, one performs the action. This is from the numerical discourses. So this word volition, the Pali word is chetana. Um, Sometimes I'll say intention, even though it's a little mixed up because we often use intention to translate the second of the path factors, samasankapa. They're related, but they're not identical. So it may be a little confusing, and I apologize, but I may use intention or volition to translate this term, chetana, which is at the heart of of karma. Uh, Some other kind of synonyms that might convey the meaning are urge, motive, impulse, or will. So the idea is that actions come forth from some inner movement within us that's the motivation or the driving force, some kind of emotional energy that makes the action happen, makes it come forth. Action's considered to take place in three spheres, body, speech, and also mind. So thoughts and emotions have volitional energy behind them. That's why the fourth aggregate of sankharas is sometimes translated as volitional formations. So, you know, the energies of Uh, desire and um, hatred and joy and compassion, all are expressing some motivation. 
So karma refers to the action as it happens in the present moment. And then the results of that action are given another term, which is vipaka. You know, in the West, we kind of mix them up, like that John Lennon song, Instant Karma. That's, he's, I think he's really talking about results, but the proper term for that is vipaka. And karma really means the action as it's happening um, in the moment. So actions are considered, and this is the, the new wrinkle of the Buddha's teaching, actions are considered skillful or unskillful depending on the volition behind them. And he was clear on what the skillful motives are and what the unskillful motives are. So when an action is being coming out of the energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, he labeled those as the unskillful actions. He called these three forces the roots of the unwholesome. And when an action is coming out of the forces of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, those actions are considered skillful because other words for that are non-greed could be considered generosity or renunciation. Non-hatred could be considered as loving kindness. Non-delusion could be considered as wisdom. So it's that urge that makes an action skillful or unskillful. An action could be described similarly but have two very different motivations. For instance, if I say to you, Um, I saw somebody plunge a knife into a person's belly and blood flowed out. Is that skillful or unskillful? Can't tell. Was it a thief trying to rob the person of their money? Or was it a surgeon who was removing an appendix to heal uh, an illness? Could be a similar action, but the moral weight of it is, is very different. So we have to look at the motivation that the actions come from to determine the skillful or unskillful nature. And of course, if we look at our own actions closely, a lot of them are mixed. We have a mixture of some wholesome and beautiful motives and some motives that are more self-centered or desire-based or anger-based. So then those, those actions are considered mixed in terms of their karmic waiting, their skillfulness or unskillfulness. So as we go back into daily life, this field of action becomes not only important, but I think really interesting. It's so interesting as we start to tune into our own intentions um, in our actions and look at the mix of motivations that are influencing us. I've had a few conversations with people here about life choices. And one of the things that seems really important to me when making important decisions about life choices is that we wait until the mind gets somewhat calm and we can trust that the energy surrounding the decision is based on clarity and wisdom and certainly kindness for ourselves rather than coming out of a lot of confusion, a mixture of wanting and not wanting. So to me, one of the greatest values of a retreat is that it allows for the settling of our own inner uh, turmoil enough that we can start to see with some clarity. And when that clarity is present, that's a very kind of good base 
from which to make big choices or decisions or to make actions. So this process of tuning into our own intentions as we speak, as we act in the world, even in the thoughts that we take a hold of and follow up, very um, significant in terms of karma and very interesting as a way to explore what's, what's going on inside us. So the basic guidelines as we move out into the world for us as committed practitioners are the five precepts of not killing, not stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct, not lying, not misusing drugs and intoxicants. Those can be refined, you know, quite, to quite subtle degrees. You know, mostly we take, we take the precepts, maybe we'll do it tomorrow morning before leaving a retreat, and we aspire to follow them, but I don't really expect myself to be able to follow them. I take them expecting that I'm going to break them at some point in some way, but I try to use that then as an opportunity for learning. So we kind of recommit ourselves again and again to this um, aspiration of causing no harm in the world. How do we live in such a way that we really cause no harm, make no unskillful ripples through our life's choices and actions. Really important part. Because when we, when we can do that successfully, we enjoy something the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. And it's wonderful to, to come into a retreat like this and we review our past actions and we don't find anything serious to judge ourselves for. We don't find causes for, for great regret or remorse, then that allows the mind to settle in a real state of peace and ease. Makes for great uh, inner harmony. And this level of skillful action can be developed quite a long way. There was an interview um, a few years ago that Oprah Winfrey conducted with the Dalai Lama. And then it was published in her magazine, O. And I love the fact that Oprah takes people like the Dalai Lama and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and gets their teachings out to this very broad audience. I don't know anybody else who has that power the way that she does, especially through her magazine. So she was interviewing the Dalai Lama and she began by asking him, have you ever had to forgive yourself for anything? The Dalai Lama replied, Small incidents, like accidentally killing an insect. (laughs) Killing an insect, (laughs) Oprah said. An insect, hmm. Okay. The Dalai Lama continued, My attitude toward mosquitoes is not very favorable. (laughs) Not very peaceful. Bedbugs also. And that's it? Oprah couldn't quite believe what she was hearing. In your lifetime, that's what you have to forgive yourself for? Small mistakes every day, maybe, the Dalai Lama said evenly. But major mistakes, it seems no. No major mistakes, Oprah repeated, mulling over the idea. (laughs) She fell silent and looked out the window. There was awe in her voice when she finally continued, 
You have nothing in life that you have regrets about. That's a good life. That's a great life to have no regrets. Regarding service to Tibet, the Dalai Lama said, service to Buddhism, service to humanity, I have done as much as I can. Regarding my own spiritual practice, when I share my experiences with more advanced practitioners, even those who have spent years in the mountains practicing single-pointedness of mind, I don't lag too far behind. And you get the sense that part of the reason that his mind can settle so evenly and so deeply is this foundation of care in his actions, to have a life free from regret. A beautiful aspiration for us. So this is the area of karma. We look at our actions, the impact on others, the impact on ourselves, and we understand that it, actions do have consequences. They have implications. This is one of the early verses in uh, the Dhammapada where the Buddha says, mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with an impure mind and sorrow will follow you like the wheel of the cart follows the oxen. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you like your shadow unshakable. This is the basic teaching on karma, that if we act out of wholesome motivations, happiness will come into our life. And to the extent that we act out of unwholesome motivations, sadness and unhappiness will come into our lives. This is a wonderful instruction because it can provide a template for our whole life for our meditation practice and our life in the world to follow in a way that gives us the greatest likelihood possible of happiness in our life. And then we also understand how we can create choices that lead to unhappiness. And I imagine you know people in your life where you can see examples of both of these. You know, when you, when you know somebody about whom you would say, wow, they're a really good person, can you look and see how their choices help establish their happiness? I have people that I can see like that. And then do you know other people whose lives have a lot of, a lot of unhappiness, which leads to confusion, and they keep making the wrong choices? And you see the effects of that in their life. So we can kind of see this lived among, you know, looking at our own life, looking at the lives of people that, that we know. Fortunately, I think this idea is kind of getting uh, popular in this culture. Karma isn't quite understood fully, but a little bit. So I was teaching a meditation class in juvenile hall some years ago. It was a great uh, privilege, actually. One of... Um, my co-teachers, James Baraz, had a friend who worked as a nurse in San Mateo Juvenile Hall. And she was able to get us uh, admitted to teach a six-week beginning meditation class. We were in the maximum security wing, and so these were young men, usually 16, 17 years old, who had been arrested and charged with things like assault, um, armed robbery, murder, Um, 
and different kinds of felonies like that. We didn't know if this class would fly at all. A couple of old middle-class guys coming in and talking about Buddhism and meditation. But we just decided to give it a shot and see what happened. And one thing that was very conducive is um, they had time on their hands. (laughs) You might say we had a captive audience. Um, Not only that, but a lot of emotions were up for these young men because they were awaiting trial. They were in juvenile hall because they were awaiting trial. And the trial might mean that they would go to jail for years. Or it might mean that they could be released back to their families. And here they are awaiting trial and they don't know what the outcome is going to be. So there's a lot of fear, a certain amount of aggression um, is there in that population. And so another cause for fear. So emotions were very high. Of course they didn't know how to deal with the fear that they were experiencing. So the main thing we emphasized was how to work with strong emotions and to feel them in their body and generate mindfulness and create space around them. And the people who, who took to the practice found it really, really helpful. We got a lot of positive feedback and then the project kept continuing after we left and transformed into the mind-body awareness project, the lineage project later. So we were getting near the end of the class and James and I said to each other one morning, we were going in, we said, uh, should we teach him about karma? And we really didn't know how that would go down. And should we teach the precepts? And we thought, this is the last chance we'll have probably to meet with these guys. Let's do it. So I gave the, I gave the talk and I presented it as the science of happiness. It's like, if you want to get happy, this is what you might want to think about. And I said, and I explained a little bit, wholesome motivations lead to wholesome results, unwholesome lead to unwholesome, and so forth. And I said, does this sound like anything you've ever heard before? And a young guy raised his hand and he said, oh, you mean what goes around comes around? (laughs) Sure. So it was very accessible for them. And they, they took it, you know, they took it in very easily. Later, I mean, this is kind of a PS, but um, we also taught them the loving kindness practice. And someone who went in after us as a follow-up with this group said that one of the guys who was in there was a gang leader. And he explained to the other guys in the group how they should practice loving kindness for the rival gang members because they also had mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. It was very moving. So this um, sense is becoming more understood and it really can change lives when, when it's seen and we take it as a direction. The Tibetans in their teachings also have what we call the Brahma Viharas, the divine abidings. They call them the four immeasurables, which is a term you can also hear in the Theravadan tradition, but that's their word for them for metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Immeasurable because there's no limit to the beings that they can be extended to. They're boundless states. But they phrase them a little differently. And this teaching is embedded in their phrases. So I just want to mention what their phrases are for metta and compassion. 
The phrase for loving kindness is, may all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness, which is virtue. May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow, which is non-virtue. So these are the phrases they say to themselves as they're practicing love and compassion. The Buddha taught this as a pretty universal law for human beings. And it basically um, doesn't really matter if we believe it or not. The law applies. It doesn't matter if our religion believes it or not. The law applies. It doesn't matter if our culture believes it or not. The law applies in quite a universal way. It applies to all human beings everywhere. And the Buddha stated it in uh, quite a strong way in several places in the text. Here's one quotation. Beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. Their actions are the womb from which they are born. Their actions are their friend, their refuge. Whatever acts they perform for good or for ill, of that they will be the heirs. So Westerners often have some resistance to this notion. One, because it's not immediately verifiable, which is understandable. But I think there's a kind of inner resistance. And maybe it goes back to our democratic roots. You know, very early in the formation of this country, the Declaration of Independence says, and I paraphrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all persons are created equal. Now somewhere in this, comes the notion, maybe, everybody should be equally happy. But according to the teaching on karma, we are, to some extent, responsible for our own happiness. And certainly the actions of others, the society, parents, and so forth, will affect our happiness. But the teaching on karma can seem kind of um, cold, or uncaring or cruel to say that people have some responsibility for their own happiness. And sometimes there's a little, also an overlay of, oh, it means um, if they're responsible for their unhappiness, then they deserve to suffer. And I don't think this is in the Buddha's teachings at all. This notion of anybody deserving to suffer, I don't find in his approach at all. Simplest example you probably know about uh, Angulimala. He was a spiritual student, quite a sincere spiritual student, who unfortunately got some bad advice from a teacher. And his spiritual teacher told him, this is out of a bad motive, that what he needed to do to advance in his practice was to kill a thousand people cut off a finger from each one and deliver it to the teacher. So at the point at which we pick up the story, Angulimala was said to have killed 999 people and taken a finger from each one and woven it into a necklace which he wore around his neck. And it was at this point that the Buddha was going to be walking by where Angulimala was living 
And Angulimala was looking for his 1,000th victim to complete his commitment. And people said to the Buddha, don't go there. Angulimala will come and kill you. The Buddha basically said, I don't think so. So undeterred, he walked by. Angulimala approached him to try to kill him as his thousandth victim. The Buddha eluded him and Angulimala yelled after him, stop, stop. And the Buddha turned around and said, Angulimala, I have stopped, but you're still burning with greed, hatred, and confusion. You stop. And something about that turned Angulimala's mind. He said he had never seen anyone who wasn't frightened of him before. And so he approached the Buddha and bowed down and asked to be instructed. Now, you're the Buddha. Here's a guy who's killed 999 people. If there's anybody who deserves to suffer, isn't this guy pretty high up on the list? If you're the Buddha, would you teach him? Or would you let him stew in his own karma? The Buddha taught him. Not only did he teach him, he ordained him. He admitted him into the Sangha. He gave him teachings. And in a relatively short period of time, Angulimala became awakened, became liberated, became one of the Arahants. So I don't think the Buddha had any idea that anybody deserves to suffer. And I think if he could have kind of plucked out the suffering of every being he met, I think he would have done that not in anyone else's power to pluck out that suffering. So, by the way, it's said that Angulimala continued to go for alms round in some of the villages where he had killed people. And the villagers threw stones at him because they still thought of him as the mass murderer who had killed their friends or relatives. And he would come back and kind of complain to the Buddha I went for alms, but the people hate me. They, they stoned me. And the Buddha said, bear it, Brahmin. Bear it, practitioner. Because this is your karma for those actions for which, if you hadn't developed in spiritual practice, you would be suffering for a long, long time. So just bear it. That's the result of your actions. So I don't think the notion of deserving is there in the teachings on karma at all, but doing unskillful actions and expecting not to have suffering consequences would be like an apple coming off its stem when it's ripe and not falling to the ground. You can't arrest the law of gravity. You can't arrest the law of karma. It's just part of the way things work, according to the Buddha. Now, another way people sometimes take it as being a heartless view is that we say something like, one might say something like, that person is suffering, I see their suffering, but it's their fault. They created it, therefore, I don't have anything to do with it, I'll turn my back on them. That is not wisdom. That's indifference. The Buddha talked very clearly about compassion being appropriate in all situations. 
Indifference is closing off the heart. So we can rationalize why we shouldn't care about someone suffering, but that's still indifference that closes off the heart of compassion and care. The heart of compassion wants to address suffering, whatever its cause, whether it's karmic or psychological or physical or biological, whatever it is, compassion wants to address the cause of suffering. So it's a misuse of the teachings to say, that's their problem, not my responsibility. That's actually indifference is considered in the Brahmaviharas the near enemy of equanimity, an unwholesome state that looks like equanimity, but is not. So we can see how actions create consequences in at least six ways. And I'm just going to mention them briefly. When we're thinking about doing an action, if we're thinking about doing something wholesome, generous, loving, or kind, we feel good just thinking about it. If we're thinking about doing something that's going to be hurtful, it doesn't feel so good. So we feel it already in planning it. In doing the action, it feels beautiful to give or to love, or to help. And it feels awful to hurt. As we get sensitive, we can feel that in the moment. So in doing the action, we feel it. And then when we contemplate it later, we feel what it was like. The goodness of generosity and kindness, the awful feeling of regret if we've hurt or harmed someone. So these are three ways, planning it, doing it, remembering it, then our actions have consequences in the way people relate to us. If we are consistently warm, friendly, thoughtful toward people, then they will like to see us coming and they will kind of welcome our presence. If we're judgmental and critical and angry or resentful, then they'll feel that energy and they'll close off and they'll back up and they won't be so welcoming. The fifth way is in habitual states of mind. When we enact certain patterns again and again, they wear a groove in the mind. The Buddha pointed to this centuries ago. Neuroscientists are finding the same thing when they say neurons that fire together wire together. Whether you think of it as a karmic pattern or a brain pattern, these things get reinforced and a groove is developed in the mind. This is from the Buddha. Monks, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. If they frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of sense desire, ill will, or cruelty, then their mind inclines to thoughts of sense desire, ill will, or cruelty. If they frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of renunciation, kindness, and compassion, then their mind will incline to thoughts of renunciation, kindness, and compassion. Then there's this one other quotation that I really like a lot. I've heard it attributed to the Buddha, but I don't believe that it's anywhere in the text. I don't know what the source is, but he could have said something like this, so I'll just repeat it as though he had. The thought becomes an intention. The intention manifests as an action. The action develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. Therefore, watch closely the thought, 
and let it spring from love for all beings. So this is how these impulses become set and formed as habits of our personality that develop into character. So this is the fifth way. The sixth way that we can see our actions have consequences is one we can't see. And that is what the Buddha often talked about, how our actions have uh, results in the future in mysterious ways that we cannot understand the mechanism of. You hear stories like this in the suttas all the time. Somebody has a life situation. Um, Example, um, there was a, a man at the time of the Buddha who was very wealthy, but he lived in very miserable circumstances and didn't let himself enjoy any of his wealth. So he ate crummy food, he didn't have comfortable clothes, he lived in a miserable little dwelling, although he actually had a lot of wealth. The Buddha said, oh, that's a result of an action in a past life. He gave to an awakened being, which is a very wholesome thing to do, but then he regretted it later out of stinginess. So he said the result of the gift was that he has wealth, but the result of the stinginess was that he couldn't enjoy it. So the Buddha would talk about these things that he could see. He said that he could see the workings of karma in ways that we can't. And the range of mind of a Buddha is is vast. So he pointed to these things, but it's not something that most of us can verify. So this is the area that's mysterious. We can't quite tell for ourselves whether it's true or not. But this is just one of six ways that we can see how our actions have consequences. Mostly when people say, I don't believe in karma, they mean this sixth way. They can't see these kind of mysterious workings. But we can all see the first five, the ways that our actions have results in our life. In fact, the Buddha said, you can't figure out the detailed workings of karma, how it unfolds in the future. It's one of four things he called imponderable. And he said that one who speculates about them will go mad and experience vexation. I'm not sure which order that's in, but not a good idea. The other thing that sometimes gets confusing about karma is sometimes people try to use it to explain everything that happens. So the Buddha was once asked, does all pleasant and painful feeling come from our own past actions? It's kind of another way to say it, isn't it? Does everything that happened in your life come from your past actions? Does all the pleasant and painful come from past actions? And he said, the people who say that don't know what they're talking about. You can't really say that because you can see there are other kinds of act, uh, results that come from other sources in the world. And he pointed to causes like illness, diet, climate, accident, and assault. He said, you can see things are also caused by these forces. So it's not right to say that everything comes from past actions. And the way I would interpret that in kind of modern terms is that karma is one law in our universe, but there are a number of other laws too. There are the laws of the physical world. There are laws of chemistry. There are laws of biology and genetics. So there are many different kinds of laws at work, one of which is the law of karma.
but it doesn't deny the operation of the others. So sometimes people use a current situation, like if you're struggling or you have an illness, and they'll go, wow, what did I do in my past actions to bring this on? We don't know that it has anything to do with our past actions. Bodies break down for their own reasons. We inherit certain tendencies of mind from our parents. We don't know it has anything to do with our actions. So this is like trying to use karma as a rearview mirror, right? Here's the present, what happened in the past. We can't do that. If you and I try to do that, we're just making up speculation. We can't see. So don't, don't even try, there's, there's no point. Where karma is useful is a map to drive down the right road in the future. We have choices now. These are the ones that we want to make based on the teachings on karma. We can't interpret the past. We don't know. So let's use it going forward. That's the skillful way. So then I want to talk about how that works. And this really comes to the idea of the relation of karma and emptiness. These two seem opposite at first. Let's take it as emptiness of self, karma and anatta. How can it land here when there's no self? There's no self doing the action. How can it land? And this was raised by a bhikkhu at the time of the Buddha. This monk asked the Buddha, what self then will actions performed by the not-self affect? The Buddha basically said, you haven't been listening to me. That was really all he said. But this is kind of the question, isn't it? So, to approach it, first thing to say is that the teaching on not-self doesn't deny individuality, right? There's Gil and there's Sally. They're not the same. And it's good that they understand that. So, you know, (laughs) Sally doesn't wear Gil's boots home tonight. Gil doesn't drive Sally's car away after the retreat. That's very helpful. So the individuality is still here, but there's nothing fixed in the individual. And a a useful way to understand this is a term in some Buddhist traditions called the mind stream. It's said that every sentient being has a mind stream or is a mind stream. And in this mind stream arise all the different Sense impressions, thoughts, feelings, concentration states, meditative states, and so on. And each of our mind streams is somewhat different. Like there's this little creek running down by the meditation hall. We could call this Dharma Hall Creek. And it's got its own kind of way of being. And it's good to designate it. You know, we can I'll meet you by the Dharma Hall Creek. We can designate that. That's helpful. And we know it's different from the Mississippi River. I'm not meeting you by the Mississippi River. I'm meeting you by the Dharma Hall Creek. But if you go and look at the Dharma Hall Creek, there's this flowing body of water. That's really what a creek is, the flowing water, that's not the same from one second to the next. You know, you never step in the same river twice. You go look at this. The water's always changing. New water all the time. But there's something about the form of it that has some constancy and some consistency. It will change too as the rains get bigger or less. 
some consistency to it. So each of us is this stream of being, and particularly a stream of mind states. That's where uh, karma is important, a flow of experience. And it's, it's tending in a certain direction. The direction kind of um, describes our personality. You know, what is personality? Isn't it the flow of thoughts and feelings and speech and action that each of us is? Isn't that basically what determines your personality? The way you think and feel and speak and act in the world. This sounds very much like karma. Volitional formations of body, speech, and mind. So as I understand it, personality is basically just these karmic patterns that we have become habituated to, which have hardened into character, that repeat again and again, that we support and reinforce by our own choices and interests and tendencies. So personality is basically the sum of our karmic patterns. Always changing, you know, sometimes generous, sometimes not, sometimes loving, sometimes not. Always changing, but personality is somewhat predictable. We each have our own grooves, you might say. But within that, within that flow of the mind stream, nothing is fixed. Nothing is fixed. It's always changing. Now, it's not so easy to change in big ways. That's why Dharma practice takes so much work. And that's why the Buddha, uh, the Buddha put it this way. Action makes the world go round. And here the word he's using is kama. Action makes the world go round. Action makes this generation turn. Living beings are bound by action like the chariot wheel by the pin. So you can feel this in practice, how these grooves that we've worn in the mind are very hard to unstick. We're bound by our past volitional actions. And it's hard to move out of it, but it's not impossible. Anything that's within the mind stream can be changed. Nothing is stuck in there. So our Dharma practice uses this principle for our transformation. Or another way to say it is, the path is a karmic unfolding our path unfolds by the principle of karma. So we come into practice and we've got these mostly unconscious tendencies of mind that have formed our character in a certain direction and our flow is in a certain direction. And generally, for most of us coming into practice, we're flowing toward Lake Samsara. (laughs) That's where that river is headed. Cycling into birth again and again, not understanding, repeating sometimes not so wise choices, heading to Lake Samsara. But then we take up Dharma practice and we have a whole set of new intentions that start coming into this mind stream. We have the intention to mindfulness. We have the intention to loving kindness. We have the intention to wisdom. We have the intention to renunciation. We have the intention to stillness and understanding. All these new intentions come in which you are generating 
strengthening and repeating moment after moment in your Dharma practice, both in formal meditation and in your daily life. These new intentions flowing in start to change the whole karmic river that we've been riding on. And then they start to reorient the direction of the stream. The influx at first is just really minor. doesn't move the overall stream very much at all. But the more these things build up and the more power they get, the more skilled and strong we get in our practice, it really starts to shift the direction and the contents of the stream. And now it starts heading in a different direction, which is the Nibbanic Ocean. <laughs> That's how our Dharma practice heads us. And this is all based on the understanding of karma. Because it's all built around what is our new intention in this moment. And as we change our volitions, the direction of our stream, of our life, of our patterns is completely transformed. These new intentions can turn us because there's nothing solid or fixed in this original stream. Yeah, ignorance has been a big player. Yeah, craving has been a big player, but they're not stuck there. These new forces can uproot those things. And we all know they can certainly, they have certainly weakened them for us. And eventually they can uproot them to the degree of liberation. So this is the effect of karma through our practice. And the way it kind of seems to me is you and I, all of us in life, are kind of floating on this sea of changing conditions. All the changing conditions of life, internal and external. You know, our inner world and our emotions and thoughts our outer world of circumstances, relationship, livelihood, political world, environmental world, ecological development. We're all exposed to all these changing situations over which we have very little control. So we're afloat on this sea which has many aspects of chaos. You know, the world doesn't always work so well. The environment doesn't always work so well. We're exposed, we're, we're vulnerable to all these different forces and all these changes. And things seem rather chaotic and there's no clear place of safety. But we have one navigating tool on that sea that we're drifting on, that we have one rudder and that is our intention. Intention is what can steer our boat through all these uncertain and changing conditions. And when we align our intention with the principles of the Dharma, with the principles of wisdom, that boat heads toward a safe harbor. So we start taking up the intentions, as I mentioned earlier, mindfulness, loving kindness, wisdom, compassion, simplicity, giving, and so forth. That leads us in the right direction. This is a, a dialogue with a teacher I mentioned earlier in the retreat called uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj. He mostly works through dialogue with people. So someone was um, 
interacting with him and talking about what was their kind of direction in life or their destiny. And Maharaj said, your own will was the backbone of your destiny. Will, remember, isn't just a synonym for intention or volition. Your own will was the backbone of your destiny. And the, the person replied, surely karma interfered. So karma is a very common concept in India. And so this is kind of saying, but, you know, past actions were, were pushing me in a certain direction. It wasn't just my own choices. Karma interfered. And Maharaj said, karma shapes the circumstances The attitudes are your own. Ultimately, your character shapes your life and you alone can shape your character. Ultimately, your character shapes your life and you alone can shape your character. This is the message of karma. We take up the skillful intentions that forms our character and then it does have amazing consequences in our life. You've probably seen it yourself. If you've been practicing Dharma for some time, did you make all those positive changes happen? Are all those positive changes only in your inner life? Or do you see positive changes in your relationships and your circumstances? I think our Dharma practice really impacts our outer life as well. It takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. But I really have faith that this inner development expresses itself outwardly as well. So this is the promise of karma. It can steer us to happiness, it can steer us to refuge, and it can steer us in the end to freedom. So these are some of the more interesting and enigmatic quotations of the Buddha where he talks about Liberation is being synonymous with the end of karma. So this is on page 20. It's quote number 69. These four types of karma have been understood, realized, and made known by me. Which four? There is karma that is dark with dark result, karma that is bright with bright result, karma that is dark and bright with dark and bright result, and comma that is neither dark nor bright with neither dark nor bright result leading to the end of comma. Wow. What is he talking about? <laughs> so as I understand it, the comma that is dark is comma that comes out of unwholesome motivations. Greed, hatred, confusion, cruelty. Comma that is bright is comma is action that is done willfully with the motivation of heading toward the positive. And this is these are things like generosity and loving kindness. Positive actions that are inspired by the wish to do good. That's bright karma. And then there's action that's mixed. You, know, you give somebody a gift but you want recognition back. That's dark and bright together. Then there's this comma that is neither dark nor bright with results that are neither dark nor bright, but it leads to the end of karma. And the end of karma is a synonym for liberation, for arahantship. The Buddha said that the fully awakened one has come to the end of karma. So what is this karma that is neither dark nor bright 
that leads to the end of karma. It's the volition to abandon the dark karma with dark results, to abandon the bright karma with bright results, and to abandon the dark and bright karma with dark and bright results. That means at some point, this is my interpretation, it's not spelled out so clearly, we stop trying to do anything at all. We definitely don't want to do harm. But in the refinement and the subtlety of meditation, we also stop trying to cultivate beautiful states like generosity and loving kindness. And of course, to do anything mixed. So it's we're abandoning volition. We're letting go of individual will. We're not calculating our life at that point. And we're kind of opening up I'd say to the fullness of not doing. And then we let the stream of Dharma carry us to wherever it will. And then in the next quotation, number 70, he gets a little more specific. And what is karma that is neither dark nor bright, with neither dark nor bright result, leading to the end of karma? It is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That is the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path, as I understand it, in its refinement and its depth, is a way of deeply letting go of personal desire and action based on personal interest. And it's such a deep letting go that it opens into this profound stillness of awakening from a place of great trust and non-doing. The end of karma. But it's still kind of a mystery. (laughs) So let's sit for just a minute with that mystery. The karma that is neither dark nor bright with neither dark nor bright results leading to the end of karma is just this noble eightfold path. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.